October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This episode is entitled Sevi Science. Last time we talked about how Robert Brinsmead went through a theological rebranding, moving from deeply traditional Adventist positions to more evangelical positions. He announced his change in a letter to his followers, and of course, for Brinsmead, church leadership was still the great bugaboo plaguing the church. That much didn't change. Now in this episode, we're going to be looking at how the church handled the question of science in the 1960s and 70s, specifically creation science or those questions pertaining to the age of the earth and the origin of life. Dr. Howard Farron had led the fundamentalist Providence Bible Institute through the greatest decades of its existence. And as the school grew, Farron and the Board of Trustees bid on an 150-acre estate nearby. In 1950, Farron and the Providence Bible Institute had the bid against Brother Bartholomew, whose Brothers of the Sacred Heart had bid $300,000 for those 150 acres. The judge ordered sealed bids from both parties, and the highest bid would win. Now, Dr. Farron figured that the brothers would at least up their bid to $325,000. But the brothers, Dr. Farron realized, would also know that the Providence Bible Institute would also go to $325,000. And knowing that, the brothers would probably add another $5,000. But Knowing that Dr. Farron would know that, the brothers would probably add another $1,000 on top of that, and that would bring the total to $331,000. Dr. Farron, knowing that the brothers knew that he knew that they knew that he knew that they knew, uh, where were we again? Anyways, the point is that Farron added another dollar on top of that bid, and he won the bid that afternoon, and he won it by a grand total of $1. The new campus was dubbed Miracle Dollar Campus. Now in 1962, Farron, now at the end of his 40 years as the head of the school, was reflective of his legacy and that of fundamentalists in general. In an address at Houghton College, Farron confessed that fundamentalists had failed in their fight against evolutionary science. Quote, There developed, therefore, a bitter controversy between science and Christian belief which wrought great havoc in the church, as I look back, I must confess that those of us who were reared in the fundamentalist tradition did not do a very good job in sincerely and courageously facing up to the scientific data, much of which we must accept today as verified data. By and large, my generation fought and lost many battles with science, which not only brought us humiliation, but which have proved detrimental to our Christian testimony." End quote. Now, I covered some of these early fundamentalist battles with science during the 1920s in a trio of episodes entitled Price of Ellen White and Bacon, Shipley Scopes in Science, and finally, Marx, McCabe, and Maxwell. But I was curious to read why Farron believed that his side had lost this debate with the scientists back in the day. He offered several explanations. First, he says, quote, we maintained an altogether too obscurantist attitude, end quote. An obscurantist is a, is a person who intentionally doesn't tell the whole story, someone who deliberately leaves facts out. And so Farron admits, 
part of our problem back then was that we weren't willing to deal in all the facts. Second, Farron admits that, quote, oft-times we resorted to ridicule and unwise rebuttal, end quote. Well, that was true enough of fundamentalism, right? Mocking evolutionists was never a winning strategy. Third, he says, quote, we fought the battle on too narrow a strip. This was especially true with respect to creation. We grossly oversimplified this complex question so that it was reduced to an either-or matter of instantaneous creation or atheistic developmentalism. But what is even more regrettable is that we gave the impression that science was an enemy of the Christian faith and that we must do everything in our power to oppose this enemy. We should have honestly faced and discussed more courageously the real problems and difficulties which arise for our Christian faith in the findings of scientists in their various fields of research, end quote. Howard W. Farron was not giving up his views. He spent a large portion of his address praising the work of science-minded evangelicals who had published what he saw as valuable books against evolution. Farron recognized in those books a better spirit of trying to reconcile science and faith than that which had existed among Farron's fellow fundamentalists back in the day. Go ahead and just say that phrase about 50 times fast. Farron's fellow fundamentalists. Pulled it off on the first try. Just want to pat myself on the back there. The 1960s were an appropriate decade for such reflection. Henry Morris and John Whitcomb had published The Genesis Flood in 1961, selling hundreds of thousands of copies to evangelicals who were eager for scientific credibility. This was the decade of the space race, culminating in the United States putting humans on the moon. The public had an incredible appetite for science in the late 1950s and throughout the 1960s. Seventh-day Adventists were not to be left behind. Adventists had quietly remained among the great champions of creation in the conservative Christian world, but as in the 1920s, so in the 1960s, evangelicals were reluctant to embrace them. When John Whitcomb looked to create what became the Creation Research Society in the late 1950s, he hoped, quote, some plan could be devised to prevent domination by SDAs, end quote, meaning just as they had done with what was the Deluge Geology Society. Now, that Deluge Geology Society had been founded under the guidance of George McCready Price by Seventh-day Adventists, and as usual, Many evangelicals were more worried about being seen with Adventists than in working together and comparing notes on scientific research. Now, things began to change after the publication of the Genesis Flood in 1961. Walter E. Lamertz, a geneticist, had been impressed by Morris and Whitcomb's book and decided to go explore Glacier National Park with two Seventh-day Adventists, Richard Ritlin and Peter Hare. Ritlin had a Ph.D., in biology from Harvard, and Hare of the famous Hare clan of New Zealand had a master's degree in chemistry from Berkeley and a PhD in geology from the California Institute of Technology. As the three men hiked through Glacier, a strange thing happened. Lambert saw evidence that George McCready Price's notion that the strata of the geologic column were out of order. The two Adventists, on the other hand, were apparently eager to see it as evidence that old George McCready Price was wrong. Despite the fear of Adventists taking over the new Creation Research Advisory Committee, the precursor to the Creation Research Society, well, you really couldn't avoid Adventists if you wanted to play with the full team. Two Adventists were asked to be on the committee out of the original eight that would guide the society, but one backed out. 
No, it was a committee of seven. And after asking several people who all turned it down, Lamerts turned again to the Adventist Richard Ritland, who likewise refused when he found out that the names of the founding members would be on the letterhead of the society's publications. Ritland was apparently concerned that putting the names at the top of every page might suggest that the society was leaning more on big names with big degrees than in doing science. But regardless, the committee and eventually the society was formed and creation science was attempting a comeback. George McCready Price hailed the Genesis flood when it appeared in 1961 by calling it an answer to prayer. Price also hailed his protege, Frank Marsh, who had been the first Adventist to have joined Lamerts's Creation Research Advisory Committee. And in an interview with the Adventist magazine These Times, Frank Marsh answers an armload of questions about the current state of the evolution and creation controversy. Marsh explained that it's really a matter of which presuppositions you bring that determine how you view the facts. He says, we're all agreed on the facts, but how to interpret them, ah, that's the trick. And so he added, quote, the most basic reason for my belief in special creation is that I believe the Bible is God's inspired word, end quote. In other words, if Marsh is right that all the data, all the scientific data is accepted by both evolutionists and creationists, then all that matters are your presuppositions, and if all that matters are your presuppositions, then why not be a Christian? Unlike Price and Harold W. Clark, Adventism's first two generations of amateur scientists, the church now had young people with PhDs from prestigious universities, but the science still came down the faith. Now, creationism was not something shared by most Christian groups, and I think this is important to understand. In 1963, some churches in Northern California were surveyed, and it revealed that only about a quarter of Catholics and Protestants opposed evolution. What percentage of these denominations believed in creationism? For the liberal Protestants, Methodists, Episcopalians, and the like, it was 11%. 11% of so-called liberal Protestants believed in creation. For moderate Protestants, meaning Presbyterians, Lutherans, and so on, it was 29%. For Adventists, 94% of members believed in creationism, and it soon became their aim to convince the rest. Around the same time the evangelicals were founding the Creation Research Advisory Committee, whew, Adventists were founding the Geoscience Research Institute. You guys are not going to have mercy on me in this episode, are you? My goodness. The year was 1957, to be exact, and... As scientific knowledge exploded and the public interest in science increased, it became clear that the church needed science teachers who were informed, who could answer increasingly difficult questions being put to them by their students, who were increasingly informed about these things. A gathering of Adventist science teachers in 1956 at Union College proved decisive in getting things rolling. So Frank Marsh, at 58 years old, was sent to Michigan State University to audit some geology courses, while Peter Hare was sent to California Institute of Technology, and Richard Ritland would eventually join the team in 1960. The task before these three men were enormous. Marsh and Hare began their work, of course, with the study of Ellen White's writings. They took their first field trip in 1959 to study geological formations in New Mexico and Canada. The next year, they took a three-and-a-half-week trip with a group of Adventist professors and teachers. The trio began the fracture, however, over how to interpret the data. Ritland and Hare realized that the Earth was far older than Adventists had claimed, while Frank Marsh 
pushed to hold the group to the writings of Ellen White, who had numerously written that the Earth was 6,000 years old or about 6,000 years old. She had noted in the Great Controversy that, quote, for 6,000 years, the Great Controversy has been in progress, end quote. More seriously, White had written, quote, infidel geologists claim that the world is much older than the Bible record makes it. They reject the Bible record because of those things which are, to them, evidences from the earth itself, that the world has existed for tens of thousands of years, and many who profess to believe the Bible record are at a loss to account for wonderful things which are found in the earth, with a view that creation week was only seven literal days, and that the world is now only about 6,000 years, end quote. Ritland and Hare weren't arguing for evolution by saying that the earth was much older, just that, well, the earth was much older. But did this pit them against Ellen White? Was she inspired in saying that the earth was 6,000 years old, or was she merely reflecting that common knowledge of her day? If she could have seen what they have seen, might she have written something different? Were they the infidel geologists that she was warning about? These are not easy questions to sort through, nor were they confined to the field of earth science. Physicians were often bumping up against Ellen White in their field, and historians were bumping up against Ellen White in their area of expertise. What do we do with Ellen White when her writings seem to clash with modern knowledge? This was a question of growing concern throughout the 1960s and 1970s and onward. And, spoiler alert, that question still hangs over various fields in the Adventist church. In 1962, Ritland stuck his neck out and wrote a paper titled Problems and Methods in Earth History, which he distributed to a small circle for feedback. Ritland noted that the flood cannot explain everything and that defending flood geology would only bring embarrassment and discredit to the cause of God. Hare, too, summoned the courage to warn church leaders of the problem. Quote, frankly, I am beginning to wonder if our whole approach to the problem is in error. We have been taught for years that almost everything in the geologic record is the result of the flood. I've seen enough in the field to realize that quite substantial portions of the geologic record are not the direct result of the flood. We have also been led to believe by men like Marsh that the evidence for the extreme age of the earth is extremely tenuous and really not worthy of any credence at all. I have tried to make rather careful study of this evidence over the past several years, and I feel that the evidence is not ambiguous, but that it is just as clear as is the evidence that the earth is round, end quote. The group split even further over Whitcomb and Morris's The Genesis Flood. Marsh, as I mentioned, hailed the Genesis Flood, while Ritland thought it was full of, quote, flagrant errors which the uninitiated person is scarcely prepared to detect, end quote. This apparently dismayed Lamberts, who was admiring the rise of the Geoscience Research Institute and had hoped his own Creation Research Society would work closely with it. If even the Adventists, who pioneered this field of study from the beginning, if, if they couldn't help but move towards modern science and be infected by that virus, then what hope do we have? Now, Peter Hare would eventually embrace theistic evolution, though he remained a Seventh-day Adventist. Frank Marsh though defending the traditional Adventist views, was, as he saw it, exiled to Siberia in 1964, meaning he was sent to teach at Andrews University. At the same time, Ritland was named as head of the Geoscience Research Institute. 
The first attempt at building the institute hadn't gone well, and it was already time to start over. Ritland brought in Harold Coffin, a name our science-minded Adventist listeners might recall because he wrote several books that happened to appear in a lot of Adventist churches and used in a lot of Adventist classes. Ritland also brought in a couple of 20-something-year-olds, one of whom he sent off to Princeton to get a doctorate in geology, and the other he sent to the University of Wisconsin to study archaeology. And finally, Ariel Roth was brought in just as he was switching fields to geology. It was a mostly different cast, but with the same problems. In 1969, Coffin published Creation, Accident, or Design, which affirmed the traditional views, but more on that in a minute. Ritland responded the next year with A Search for Meaning in Nature, a new look at creation and evolution. Now, Ritland sidestepped evolution and focused on evidence for design. It didn't impress the traditionalists, and Marsh marveled at how such a man could come to occupy a high position in the church. But the two books, about a year apart from each other, showed that, well, the Geoscience Research Institute leaders were not themselves unified on how to solve every every question related to creation. Is the earth young, young-ish, or old? Did the flood cause all of these geological features we have on the earth or not? These are the things that they were discussing. These are the things that they differed on. From August 5th to September 6th, 1965, Ritland took 40 pastors and scientists on the tour of geological sites, including the editor of the review, Francis Nichol. The group went from Banff in Canada down to Yosemite and the Grand Canyon. In writing about the trip, Nichol attempted to shake up church members to be alert to what he called the mortal threat of evolution. Now he wrote, quote, Some of our good members may blandly reply that Adventists are really uninterested in fighting any battles with evolutionists. They devoutly hold that we may ignore the whole matter of fossils as phantoms and dinosaur bones and footprints as exhibits of an overheated evolutionary imagination, end quote. Nickel recognizes that apparently a sizable number of Adventists were still laughing at evolution as unworthy of serious attention and apparently thinking that fossils really didn't describe anything that had lived before, that dinosaur bones and footprints were, were just figments of our imagination. Now, I don't know what Nickel believed before his trip with Ritland, but it's very clear that after his trip with Ritland, he took evolution much more seriously. It was something to be grappled with. It wasn't something to be laughed at. Nickel was also responding to some unknown accusations that the trip had some kind of nefarious purpose, that not all Avenists really agreed on creationism, and this was a cabal that was going out to the wilderness to meet and figuring out how to undermine creationism. Of course, Nickel denied those rumors. As he rather acidly put it in his article, quote, we think we know whereof we speak, end quote. Nickel had a revelation on the trip, and that was that the sticking point between creationists and evolutionists wasn't creation, so to speak, but the worldwide flood. Creation is a matter of faith. The flood is at least partially a matter of the scientific record there should be some kind of tangible, observable evidence that it happened. And again, Nickel took aim at Avenus who scoffed at evolution. If we do this, he warned, quote, we will be taunted as belonging to those who even today refuse to examine evidence that the world is round. And that would mean losing all contact with a host of highly educated men and women whose souls are eminently worth saving. How tragic, end quote. Nickel wanted to keep the church engaged with science. 
This, Nickel claimed, had always been the way Avenus handled things. We don't shut our eyes to the evidence. We may interpret it differently than other people do. They may not accept our interpretation, but we should not be known as a people who are ignorant of the evidence. As such, Nickel challenged the review's readers to, quote, go into the field, climb mountains, ford streams. We cannot hope to speak with certainty unless we make this kind of study. And here, we repeat, lies the major battlefield. End quote. For all of the confidence with which Nickel exuded, he admitted that the geology didn't uniformly support the flood narrative. Now, Nickel believed in the worldwide flood, and he expected every other Avenist to believe in it as well. What was less clear is exactly how such a flood would have shaped the world. Some geological features didn't make sense in light of the flood. Nickel called it almost bewildering yet reassured his readers, quote, we must invoke faith in the biblical record to aid us where our finite comprehension of the facts is inadequate, end quote. To be sure, in his view, the evolutionists had just as many problems to solve as the creationists. Nickel wanted to make that clear to prevent anyone from thinking the grass is greener on the other side. It's not easier as an evolutionist than as a creationist, he might say. Ritland, Nickel affirmed in leading this tour, was a loyal Seventh-day Adventist. Eight months later, Nickel was dead, and Robert H. Pearson was elected General Conference President. Pearson paid more attention to those rumors of a creeping liberalism in the church than his predecessors had. The Geoscience Research Institute became even more focused on apologetics, that is, defending the faith, than in necessarily conducting original research, as some had envisioned for the Institute at the beginning. The more open-minded Richard Hamill, who had been chair of the committee overseeing the GRI, the Geoscience Research Institute, was cut out. Hamill would eventually come to accept progressive creationism. Frank Marsh took the opportunity to write to the new president from his exile, complaining that Ritland was liberal and had led the GRI to become liberal as well. In Marsh's telling, when Richard Hamill had convened the meeting with Ritland, Marsh, and Hare back in 1961, Hamill had done so by saying, quote, We know that Mrs. White has made many statements about geology, but just for now, let's lay those aside and see what are the facts. End quote. Marsh labeled everyone at the GRI as liberals, even the ones who subsequently proved to be consistently conservative. And it wasn't so simple. Coffin's book, Creation, Accident, or Design, had initially been red flagged during the review process because he claimed that the Earth was a little more than 6,000 years old. Pearson fretted. Quote, I have an inborn fear that we are going to have some real trouble ahead as far as the subject of creationism is concerned. End quote. Pearson's fears are all the more remarkable when you consider that Coffin was a conservative who only wanted the earth to be a little more than 6,000 years old. Pearson therefore went on a field trip with Rittenden in 1968. They were part of a 17-car caravan journeying to Utah, Arizona, Wyoming, they stopped to visit Bryce Canyon, the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, Dinosaur National Monument, and of course, Yellowstone. The main feature in Yellowstone was the petrified forest, where you have layer after layer of petrified trees. Some of the trees in each layer were 500 years old by counting the rings on them, apparently. And the story, as most scientists told it, is that a forest grew for at least 500 years, was buried by volcanic ash, and petrified. This would eventually turn to soil and other forests would grow on top of it, and the whole process would therefore have to take tens of thousands of years. Now, there are creationist explanations for this phenomenon, namely 
that these trees didn't grow in this in these sequential layers, but that they were all deposited at once in these different layers, only giving the appearance that they were built on top of each other. Pearson could admit the challenge that such features in geology presented. And he said, quote, it is not easy to fit all archaeological and geological data into a time span of approximately 6,000 years. There are likewise problems in accommodating data provided by chemical and radioactive dating techniques to an approximate 6,000 year duration of life on this planet, end quote. Still, Pearson was adamant that the church was absolutely not going back on the Bible or on Ellen White. About 6,000 years, it was. In his report of the trip in the review, Pearson likewise affirmed that the scientists were loyal Seventh-day Adventists who believed in Ellen White and the soon second coming of Jesus. It's a little disconcerting when you read these reports, I'm just going to tell you, and you find that somebody, whoever's writing it, always has to affirm that those scientists who were part of the tour were loyal, as if there's like a default doubt in the minds of readers that if they're in science, they're suspect, and so we need to make sure our readers know that these are good scientists, not those Trojan horse evolutionary scientists. Like Nickel, Pearson also cautioned his readers. He said that, quote, it is easy to ridicule what we do not understand, and a little knowledge can prove most dangerous, end quote. And like Nickel, Pearson reminded his readers that conservative creationists weren't the only ones with problems. And also like Nickel, Pearson preached that all of this ultimately comes down to faith. Pearson had managed to have some fun on the trip, joking that they were running around with dinosaur nets trying to bring back a live specimen. But whatever his public display of confidence, some of the presentations by Adventist scientists on the trip bothered him. Dr. Eric Magnuson rather bluntly said that the Earth had to be several millions of years old, and there was a debate over how to interpret the petrified forest at Yellowstone. In his article, Pearson dwelled on how the trip deepened his faith. What he didn't say is that the division of Avenus scientists over how to interpret the science deeply shook him. Now, Pearson took on an uncompromising tone in his article, quoting Ellen White to the effect that it is not our job to bring theology in line of science, it is our job to bring science in harmony with the Bible. Pearson understood that this would make Avenus seem strange to virtually everybody else, and to that end, he quoted a Jesuit who had reviewed the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary and who had noted that only Adventists take Genesis 1 to 11 literally, which isn't quite true. But anyways, this didn't trouble Pearson. Adventists were called to be a peculiar people. So what if we stand alone? Who cares? That's the job that we all signed up for. The Adventist archaeologist Siegfried Horn privately wrote that this article seemed like the beginning of a witch hunt, Pearson had publicly called Ritland loyal, but behind the scenes, he had his doubts about Avenus intellectuals like Ritland. Pearson saw a conflict with Avenus intellectuals as inevitable, which doesn't require any special prophetic gifts when you're also the one plotting such a conflict. After Pearson returned from his trip west, Sakai Kubo, an Adventist professor who had finished his PhD in New Testament studies at the University of Chicago, was moved to the school library, <laughs> effectively sidelining him. Kubo would spend a decade in, as a librarian in limbo before he could join a theology department again. In the years ahead, several others would meet similar fates. Moves like this had a chilling effect on others, of course. Students knew that 
they only had to accuse their professors of liberalism and there would be, you know, a decent chance for trouble to come. Some professors had mentioned that they believed the Earth was over 6,000 years old, likely taking cues from their annual field trips with Ritland. Ritland acknowledged that it was unwise to say such things in class, but this didn't make them traitors to the Adventist faith. Ritland poured out his heart in a letter to a vice president of the GC, someone named Neil Wilson, who I'm sure will never come up in this podcast again. He felt anxiety over where the church was headed, if simply believing that the earth was over 6,000 years old was grounds for discipline. Ritland added a handwritten note for Neil Wilson, quote, It worries me if we begin a heretic purge that might become general, when indeed we may discover too late to our chagrin that the heretics were closer to the truth than we, end quote. And yet Ritland's call for caution and conscience was heard against the backdrop of a brutal public battle between adherents and proponents of evolution. The United States Supreme Court struck down a fundamentalist-era Arkansas law which prohibited the teaching of evolution in public schools. Some areas of the country responded by passing new laws mandating the teaching of creationism alongside evolution, and the Supreme Court likewise struck down these laws as unconstitutional also. To creationists, it must have felt like they were besieged by the entire world, and yet they held on. And as I mentioned earlier, 94% of Adventists believed in creation in 1963. The question was asked again in a wider poll in 1980, and it was learned that 94% of Adventist believers believed in a recent creation. Adventists weren't budging. The issue in the 1960s wasn't so much a belief in special creation versus evolution, but about the details of that creation in the Adventist church. Claiming that the earth was older than 6,000 years old was tantamount to renouncing the faith in the eyes of Pearson and others. With his increasing conviction that liberalism had infiltrated the church, especially in the universities, Pearson decided that the Geoscience Research Institute needed their third fresh start in a decade. Ritland apparently took the hint and resigned in 1971, moving, like Marsh, into a teaching position in Siberia, I mean Andrews. The topic of the age of the earth, however, didn't go away. But that's all I'm going to say about it here. Listen to the end of this episode, and I'll let you know where you can hear more about it. In 1973, Robert Brown was appointed as the new head of the GRI after only three years as president of Union College. The GRI had a more focused sense of mission in the 1970s. It focused more on apologetics and science education. Harold Coffin created a course on creationism and evolution that teachers could use to explain the issue. The Institute also held meetings on various Adventist campuses where staff members would lead worship or answer questions that students might have. The GRI also funded research opportunities for students or researchers at Adventist colleges, and of course they continued leading church leaders and others on field trips. The church leaders who took these field trips often wrote articles filled with more Ellen White and Bible quotes than notes about what they saw. Those on the trip would often issue statements of faith as a result of their trip. I guess they would gather together near the end of it and say, let's work out a statement that we can all agree upon. A statement that would also end up just affirming their faith, affirming that the trip built their confidence in the Bible and Ellen White, even while they invariably, in all of these articles, invariably would say, yeah, this is a really difficult issue. We don't have answers for all of these problems. And under Brown's leadership, 
the GRI began publishing a journal, Origins, which in the 1980s would become the premier journal even for non-Avenist creationists. The Geoscience Research Institute also educated Avenists in the spirit of Francis D. Nickel to not ridicule people who believed in evolution. Leonard Brand, a fellow at the GRI, said Avenists were making a mistake in, quote, tearing down evolution instead of building up creation, end quote. Brand went on, quote, I recommend that we each take our favorite sermon on creation and with a red pen mark out all statements that ridicule evolutionists, make them look foolish, dumb, uninformed, or in any way tend to make them look bad, end quote. Brand shared that he had a friend who once attended an evangelistic meeting to hear the gospel, but left in disgust as the preacher used his time to make fun of evolutionists. Likewise, church members were told to use their words carefully. Evolutionists don't believe man came from monkeys, but ape-like ancestors. If you keep saying monkey, Brand warns his readers, you're going to signal your ignorance on this topic. Brand also warned church members not to give in to confirmation bias. He noted that an evangelist who began using information from a creationist book in a sermon, and he did so without knowing that some of the things that he was repeating were just bad science. Brand goes on, quote, Some books on creation have been written by persons who are not adequately trained, and that even though these books sound convincing and have a good conservative ring, they may contain information that is out of date or even completely false. When we are speaking on subjects out of our field of training, the only safe policy is to contact someone who is trained in that field and ask them to check our material for accuracy, end quote. With that, Brand offered the services of the Geoscience Research Institute. We are here to help you check your sermons, check your documents for accuracy so you don't have to publish, write, preach, whatever, something out of ignorance. Brand closed his article by affirming his belief in creation, but also in offering one final caution. You cannot prove creationism or evolution. What we have, he said, is evidence, not proof. There can be no proof since creation and evolution happened so long ago. We weren't there to see it. We can't test it. We can't document it. We can't repeat it. God never promised us proof, Brand says, not proof of anything. God promises, as Brand puts it, only sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith, but not proof. And so this small band of Avenist scientists ventured out into the world to build the evidence and to make their case for creation. I wouldn't say that the amateur science days of George McCready Price were behind the church now, as amateurs with an interest in geology and archaeology still prowled the barren spaces of the world. Nor, I should think, were a half-dozen staff enough to make a dent in the scientific establishment. But Brand captured well that the goal was to find evidence, not proof, upon which a basis of faith could rest. Despite the challenges of the work, one can't help but imagine the exciting camaraderie of doing field trips together. During the 1978 trip, 20 cars took nearly 100 Avenus across the country, and rather than singing 99 bottles of water on the wall, or to look for clouds that most resembled Ellen White, the participants got on the radio and had long discussions about the age of the Earth and the implications of what they had seen at the last stop. And it sounds like fun. Throughout the 1970s, articles in church papers in common cause with Robert H. Pearson's administration began expressing their concerns about liberalism. This was often mixed with an anti-intellectual bias, one issue of the ministry even showed a diploma resting in the mouth of a bear trap, a strange move 
from a church that prided itself on having a massive educational system. The seminary faculty found themselves under constant pressure before and after a Newsweek article cited an anonymous scholar who claimed that very few seminary professors still believed in a 6,000-year creation, and many of them don't believe the earth was formed in 24-hour days. Pearson was frustrated. Quote, has it come to the place where our seminary teachers cannot make a full statement as far as the about 6,000-year statement in the spirit of prophecy is concerned? End quote. This wasn't about science. This was about belief in Ellen White. The seminary faculty wrote a statement to defend themselves, but Pearson nixed the idea of publishing it. Instead, Pearson picked up his pen to affirm in print that the earth was 6,000 years old. Quote, this is the stand the denomination has taken, and as far as I know, has not changed. End quote. Nichols' successor at the Review, Kenneth Wood, himself wrote in defense of the traditional chronology of the church, but even he rejected one of Pearson's articles, which, in his view, claimed too much. Pearson had evidently written that the purpose of the three angels' message was to counteract evolution, which isn't far removed from what the current Sabbath school lesson has been saying. <clears throat> the 1970s revealed that it was impossible to prevent Adventists from coming to their own conclusions about the origins of life. Spectrum Magazine had been born in 1969 and offered Adventists a place to publish their views outside of Kenneth Wood's domain. Other Adventist magazines or journals had been started before Spectrum, of course, but Spectrum found success where the others hadn't. So while church administrators returned from field trips admitting that, yes, there were vague problems for young earth creationism, writers in Spectrum had no problem spelling out what those problems were. Spectrum also published semi-technical articles by GRI scientists, which made Spectrum an important resource for Adventists who wanted to be informed and not just reassured. Pearson wasn't interested in discussing human origins. Two of Pearson's lieutenants, Richard Hamill and Willis Hackett, began visiting Adventist colleges looking for feedback on two statements, one of which affirmed that the earth is 6,000 years old, albeit in a footnote. Professors would be encouraged but not required to sign the statements. Some were struck by the fact that they knew Hamill didn't believe in a strict 6,000-year creation, so what was he doing here? The meeting only came to an end, according to Gil Valentine, when Neil Wilson, a general conference vice president, who I'm sure will never come up again in this podcast, privately professed that he believed the earth was older than 6,000 years old because of the antiquity of ancient Egypt. But this didn't end the issue, only the meeting. Hackett made it clear that while no one would be forced to sign this those who didn't sign would be looked upon with suspicion. In an editorial in the review, Hackett made the case for the church to publish, quote, statements on what it considers to be its fundamental beliefs, end quote. While some protested that this would be a creed and Adventists were against setting up creeds, Hackett insisted that these fundamental beliefs would only reflect what the majority of Adventists believe, which is, by the way, how Uriah Smith justified his list back in the 1870s. That is, this list of fundamental beliefs would be descriptive, not prescriptive. It would only describe what people believe, not prescribe what people need to believe. The views of church employees would then, however, be judged by these beliefs, making them, well, kind of prescriptive, huh? But don't take my word for it. Hackett himself wrote, quote, Administrators, church leaders, controlling boards, and leaders at all levels of the church will find it easier to evaluate persons already serving the church and those hereafter appointed, 
as to their commitment to what is considered basic Adventism. Thus, the church will be protected against the subtle influence of those who have become unclear and doubtful as to God's self-revelation in his word and in the counsels of the Holy Spirit, end quote. Prominent Adventist scholars like Bill Shea and Siegfried Horn opposed this move. An, an employee at the White Estate resorted to protesting under a pen name in Spectre magazine in order to save his job. Horn called it an inquisition. Shea called it heresy. And Horn confided in his journal, quote, We are getting more and more into the Dark Ages. It seems to me that Pearson and co. are determined to raise the age of the earth question to the level of an article of faith before they move off the scene of action in 1980. It really is awful, end quote. Now, in the end, 6,000 years were dropped from the statement in favor of the phrase, a short history of life. Pearson had resigned before the end of his term, leading to the selection of Neil Wilson, who, as we've seen, wasn't as adamant on this point as his predecessor, and whom I'm sure we're never going to talk about again in this podcast. Yet the general conference session in 1980 approved the 27 fundamental beliefs. One of those was on creation, and it simply affirmed creation in six days and said nothing about the age of the earth. In 2015, the General Conference session approved changes to this belief, adding the word recent to preclude any possibility for evolution. Although, how recent is recent? How soon is soon? The General Conference president, Ted Wilson, son of Neil Wilson, huh, would you look at that, rose to speak, quote, I will tell you I personally believe, based on the spirit of prophecy, that the earth is approximately 6,000 years old, end quote. To paraphrase Rusty Reno, it's always the 1960s somewhere. Now before I go, let me just acknowledge that this episode was much longer than I anticipated. In the past, when I had a big topic, I would cut it off at some point, knowing I could just pick it up again in the future. As the podcast is in its final year, I realize I don't have the luxury of picking it back up again, so I wanted to stretch it out a bit further. I recognize that a lot was left unsaid. There was much more to explore, particularly in student newspapers. Wish I had more time. Nor did I really cover the 1980s or 1990s or 2000s in any detail, largely, again, due to time and because I don't feel that it's possible to get a good sense of perspective given that it is still recent history. I may bring up the church's relationship with the question of origins again in the future, but this is the last fulsome treatment I'm going to give this topic. Except, well, not exactly. I actually wrote more for this episode than I had to cut, right? So I'm going to just record it and put it on Avenus History Extra, the private podcast I host for those who support the Avenus History Project. So if you want to learn a little bit more about the Earth being 6,000 years old, and how various Adventists handled that in the writings of Ellen White, well, you can subscribe to Adventist History Extra either at AdventistHistoryPodcast.org or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Both of these links are in the show notes below. This extra episode isn't quite live yet, so you can't go listen to it today, assuming today is, I don't know, before early June, when I hope to have that episode recorded and posted. So, Thanks again to those who are supporters for making all of this possible. But supporter or not, I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I know your time is valuable, and the fact that you choose to spend it with me means the world to me. We'll talk again soon. Hey, it's me again. 
If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.